This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Alexandra Helen Nicholas, Emma Westwood, and it's rather wonderful to be joined once more by Cerise Howard. We have a full cave evening all. Woo-hoo. Evening. Hello, welcome back, Cerise. Thank you. It's very <laughs> nice to be back in the cave. It's been what how many weeks has it been, Cerise? Ooh, less than 20 and <laughs> more than one. Pick a number, any number. We've all missed you, Cerise. She just pops in <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> On tonight's show, we're going to take a look at Ruin. This is an Australian-made film set in Cambodia. It was actually made as late as 2013, but after a considerable amount of delay, it is now getting a small release in Australia in the form of various event screenings. And we're, all gonna, we're also going to cover this year's Palm Door winning film at the Cannes Film Festival, I, Daniel Blake. This is the new film by the renowned filmmaker Ken Loach. But first, we're going to begin with Neon Bull, a 2015 Brazilian film that debuted last year at the Venice International Film Festival, where it won the Special Jury Prize. Now, this is the second feature film by filmmaker and visual artist Gabriel Masque. Garone, who has mostly made short narrative and documentary films up until recently. Neon Bull is about a group of people who work on a travelling rodeo, in particular one of the bull handlers, who dreams of being a women's clothes designer and he makes outfits for one of his co-workers on the side. Neon Bull is episodic and mostly we simply observe and follow the characters from location to location with some notable episodes, including an attempted act of theft that is best left as a surprise, I think. (laughs) (laughs) The film is given both a sense of naturalism and a dreamlike quality by cinematographer Diego Garcia, who also shot the mesmerising Thai film Cemetery of Splendour, which screened in Melbourne Ah, earlier this year. That's as far as tidbits go. That's a hell of a tidbit. And that makes (laughs) sense, doesn't it? If you've seen both those films. Little, I've got like Tetris brain. Tetris film brain things are just going blah, 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 in falling into place. Yeah, well, Can you go- hear that? Blah, 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 gorgeous blah. use of colour. I mean, Cemetery of Splendour kind of had a neon colour colour palette mm-hmm. to it as Those well. Those beautiful green lights in the hospital ward. That, that was a gorgeous sequence. Stunning image. I'm sorry we didn't get to speak about Cemetery of Splendour at any length on the show, but it's, it's worth tracking down if you can. I'm not too sure what its availability is. I'm always thinking about it. Every, I mean, we're talking about other films, but somewhere in my heart I'm always thinking about really? Cemetery of Splendour. Yeah, I loved it. Really? I it. Okay. Yeah, I have gorgeous. to see it. It's beautiful. Yeah, I've, okay. I've got a feeling. <laughs> we really have gone way off the track very early. <laughs> I've got a feeling it's available on home entertainment, but mm. only through streaming services. It's a Madman Entertainment film. It's so definitely worth chasing. I think so. I've, I've seen it a couple of times. Because it's gorgeous. It, aside from other things, because it looks beautiful. So it, going back to me <laughs> getting everything off track, um, this film I think also looks just exquisite. Did we find Neon um, Bull as beautiful? Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. We were making jokes. Ha ha, Neon Bull. La ha ha, not Neon Demon. But it's, oh, look, they're both kind of about fancy frocks. <laughs> like, <laughs> ladies in frocks. It's like, they're not hugely similar, but they're, you know, the neon is not the only things in common between I these two I, films. I can't remember any rodeo sequences in um, Neon Demon. Well, maybe it anyway. would have been better for it. I'm just putting that out there. The yeah, I both, was, both films yeah. have an element of taboo with them as well. <laughs> they sure <laughs> do. Yeah. Neon, uh, neon Bull has my favourite sex scene of the year. 
Yes. It was like, definitely the down. climax of the, the movie, <laughs> oh, I would say. Emma. <laughs> oh, Emma. Boom, boom. <laughs> I I, um, I kind of was waiting for, uh, I thought, this is a Brazilian film. This has to be salacious in some way. And it was like it's it kind of um, teased you at the start. There were a number of scenes that you went, ooh, it's going to be a bit naughty, a bit saucy, but nothing actually, actually happened. And then, yeah, something happened. <laughs> Quite a few things happened in this film. Yeah, yeah. There's one. The, the act of theft was the first uh, very interesting, more more comedic um, scene. Yeah, I, I don't know how much we. Yeah, we can't really give away too we much. Can't, but no, it's, bodily, uh, bodily fluids. Can we just say that bodily fluids are involved in this heist? Flu. It's it's an act involving an animal that is very much also uh, something that veterinarians do. I mean, it is part. It is. is, If if you're you're, trying to justify it, it's part of life. You basically said. What I'm trying to say is, it's not animal porn. (laughs) Yes. Don't don't panic. What what we do see something that is what breeders have to do and. Eight, eight, minutes, eight minutes past seven and we're already talking about People's animal porn. People's minds are help us. We've really suffered without you. Save no, us from no, this I'm, animal I'm porn. I'm enjoying taking the back seat here and just letting you dig deeper and deeper. <laughs> See what happens to them. Yeah. Um, the, mm. the thing with, uh, I mean, it was really beautiful and I don't know uh, in terms of the other films that this cinematographer has made, but I think in the direction, it was really like a series of wides, the whole film. And um, while that can be really effective, I find it a little bit emotionally distancing for myself. Um, for most of the film, I could have thought that uh, the the lead actor was Aaron Peterson until you actually get... We didn't really get close to him to see properly what he looked like. And I think that's the, the emotionally engaging stuff is when you come in close to a character and it was very much about wide. So it has this distancing quality about it, which is good or bad depending on what you like, I think. Yeah, I, I was a bit frustrated. I couldn't have more of an emotional engagement with it because I, I did objectively really like this film. And a lot there were many elements of it I was drawn into, but I was a bit frustrated. I couldn't connect overall throughout the film. I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed uh, it was the first film I've seen in a little while, which uh, is what some people are pejoratively called slow cinema. We've got very composed uh, shots, nice, long, drawn-out um, uh, shots where you just get to slowly absorb, uh, scrutinise the picture for, well, the hope that there's something in it worth scrutinising. Sometimes there is immediately, and other times it takes a sweet time just to let something stroll into shot. It even begins with a very enigmatic uh, shot where you slowly discern that it's actually one ball on top of another ball squeezed into a... Um, a crate or a fence it's all there's lots of um, very uh, compressed balls in this there's lots of animals on top of other animals and generally actually a lot of animal mistreatment I would say never mind any interference from um, other orders of the uh, animal kingdom uh, with (laughs) respect to uh, bodily fluids as alluded to by my esteemed colleagues (laughs) I like Not the way, so esteemed. I like that you said esteemed, yeah. <laughs> I, what do we think about the, the treatment of animals in this film? Because I found some of that a bit uncomfortable. I, I just like the fact that it's a film called The Neon Bull and it actually had a neon bull it in did. it. That's I'm, true, I'm yeah. a pretty simple girl. Yeah. I just, yeah. You know that film, The House of Sand and Fog? Yep. Yeah, no, no. No, no, no House, house of, sand. of Sand and Fog. No House of Fog, yeah. nothing. I got, t- got my money back. <laughs> 
You would I, have hated like, fox catcher then. No, I'm not at home to that. There was no yeah. fox being caught. So this, there, there, it is called the neon bull. There is a neon bull. I think that that's that's worth that's flagging. Enough. I was like you, Cerise. I was really captivated by this film. My whole thing with watching a movie is just show me something I haven't seen before. Um, and yes, there is some animal stuff, perhaps the, <laughs> that I certainly hadn't seen before. <laughs> and you haven't um, seen a Brazilian film where someone gives themselves a Brazilian. Did you notice that? That's true. That's really true. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I just, you had to think. I just remember that scene, yeah. That was fine. Um, I, I was really, really besotted with this movie. I was, it was just, I was in it um, the second that it started. So I, um, yeah, I mean, there is some, some stuff, a little bit eyebrow-raising, I guess you could say, that with, with animals in particular. But I think that it's balanced quite shrewdly with the way that humans are filmed in this film film as well. well not the same but i think that there's a conscious animalistic kind of animal slash human uh, you know kind of breaking down those boundaries a little bit in a kind of, of interesting way for sure that's part of the yeah. point of the film but, but but we see people go about the rodeo yeah and how you would ha- handle animals in the rodeo i mean it didn't feel like it was deliberately staged for the camera it felt like this is the procedure they go through but yeah. you're still seeing animals treated in a way that i think it would maybe be, i've seen too I much think, italian yeah. horror but yeah, it's like i think <laughs> it would be insincere if it wasn't like that like you'd think well that's not actually realistic i think what what do they call it vacayada or something like that is a some sort of brazilian rodeo that you know actually didn't look that spectacular they seemed to pull down the the bull rather easily and by the tail and by the, the sandy tail yeah um but uh, yeah i think that you know to to be pc about it I, I don't know how it was filmed i'm assuming there was no animal cruelty in the way it was filmed but I in you know i don't know about that Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Was there no disclaimer at the end? I looked. I saw no disclaimer. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, and I, I, d- I don't think appealing to realism excuses actual depiction of cruelty to animals on, animals on screen. I don't have a problem with that as long as they aren't actually um, harmed in terms of uh, the filmmaking. So if an animal yeah, isn't sure. actually harmed, that's fine in what they present on the screen because we we're presenting some uncomfortable things that happen and unfortunately animal cruelty can happen so whether it's an a, a comfortable cinema viewing experience or not is another thing it's, it's a, bit, it's a big question it. and it goes back to i think i mean it goes back a long way but there's the george franju documentary about the slaughterhouse what's that called uh, yeah. but we, yeah. just, to, just to clarify um, we're talking the difference between filming stuff that would happen to animals as part of a workplace procedure or a cultural uh, ritual anyway mm-hmm. versus deliberately harming yeah. an animal for an artistic result. And I think this film yes. very much fits into the former. Uh, all right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Are we all on the same page yes. with that? Yeah, yeah. It does. Yes. It's not. Yes. It's not cannibal holocaust. No. Exactly. It's, it's not, not... That um, should actually be the tagline. Yes. yes. That would be it a great tagline. was actually a film of animal... Well, not the whole film the of animal cruelty, but it's not cannibal animal, holocaust. No. It's yeah. not, yes. <laughs> There's uh, a lot going on in this film uh, suggesting that the humans and the bulls are not terribly far removed from one another. The, the, it even begins with this kooky little burlesque sequence. Gorgeous, with the, gorgeous. The bull head on a lady which doesn't make any sense at that moment and takes its sweet time to show how that has any relation with the narrative such as it is, Um, which is one of the pleasures of this film, that it is a slow burn, a slow tease, uh, that it draws out all of these connections that are um, slow to reveal themselves. But it, it's it's really weird when we, we get to see... Now, what's our lead character's name? Ir, Iri, um, Iramal. Iram, Iramal. Yeah, Iramal. Yeah. And his model, um, when, when he's first taking her measurements and refers to her head of hair as her mane, 
in the first of many parallels drawn between the human form and animal forms. Um, actually, not the first, because we've already seen the horse dance. We later realise it is that woman dancing as a horse-headed, weirdy, burlesque thing for the rodeo set, whom we can, I think, pretty safely presume to be a largely masculine uh, turnout at those events. Um, it's really intriguing the role that the women folk and especially the young the women daughter, folk, Kaka. the daughter, mm-hmm. yeah, she's my favourite character. In yeah, this film. I love her. She is. She's um. It, there's <laughs> nothing is sugarcoated for that little girl about no. how the world operates and how earthy the uh, sexuality is generally um, shown in this film and and maybe ought to be in real life. I don't know, but it's something very very sensible about just not sugarcoating things. Her performance is really extraordinary. I think there's some really great performances in this, but, but that, that child really stood out to me. There, um, I'm glad you touched on the links between humans and animals, because I think that's a very, very integral part of this film. Not just bulls, but also horses are very yes. important in this film as well. And I think that it explains a lot of the places this film goes that may seem a bit off-kilter at first. I mean, I think that the biggest connection they do is to do with sexuality, sensuality and fertility. All mm-hmm. connected as one thing mm, that you know yes. the, the, the sex yeah. act ultimately is about uh, insemination, and that 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 certainly is a major theme in the, in the scene we're sniggering about, which we won't reveal the full details <laughs> of just yet. And also the very beautiful sex scene at the, at the end of this film, which I don't think I've ever seen a sex scene no, like that on film. No, and it's and one it, of those scenes that long. is affronting because you realise you don't see this, and there is no reason why it should be affronting. Mm. It's, it's really mm. beautiful. It ha- this has a tremendous is ending. It simulated. This film. That's what I was I wondering. I don't think I'm not it's. Sure. Um, I think not. I don't think it's simulated. No. And it was shot in real time as well. I don't think there's and any edits in the it. The film has got an R rating for its sexual it content. Felt, it so felt that it was non simulated. Yeah. I mean, it, it felt, it looked. <laughs> I, I had a gander. I looked in. And, and may Did you pause I. pause and zoom? <laughs> Honey, I'm always pausing and <laughs> zooming. <laughs> may I. Uh, say without revealing anything I think that she was actually in the condition she was in Mm, Yeah, Yeah. that's what I thought as well so people just take that away with you and watch the movie (laughs) it'll make sense (laughs) I love this film I just just, it really captivated me it's the only word I keep coming back to it just really besotted me actually three triple I, Daniel Blake, is the new film directed by renowned filmmaker Ken Loach from a script by his long-term collaborator Paul Laverty. Loach is one of the small number of directors who has now won the Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival twice, once for his 2006 film The Wind That Shakes the Barley and now again ten years later for I, Daniel Blake. Loach has long been known for his naturalistic style and focus on social issues. He is regarded as a miserablest filmmaker by some, but also championed by others for his socialist critique of poverty and class differences. I, Daniel Blake is a classic Loach film. It stars stand-up comedian Dave Johns, playing very much against type, as Daniel Blake, a 59-year-old joiner who, after suffering a heart attack, is told by his doctor he can't go back to work. He is therefore reliant on receiving sickness benefits from the UK equivalent of Centrelink but they assess him as being fit for work, sending him into an impersonal and bureaucratic quagmire as he goes through the appeal process and fights to continue receiving enough money to live on. Now, during this process, he meets and befriends Katie Morgan, played by Hayley Squires, a single mother of two who is also struggling to cope with a system that increasingly seems designed to break the spirits of the people it was once meant to look after. 
What do we think of the new Ken Loach film? Are we Ken Loach fans? Where does this... Did we get... Who starts? Did you go into this film looking forward to seeing it or out of a sense of duty? I didn't look forward to seeing it. Not because I don't like Ken... Oh, it's hard to say. It's not that I don't like Ken Loach films. I think he's, um, he's actually amazing. But I knew that I was going to have a certain reaction to it. It's all a little bit too close to home. I see a lot of people. I know a lot of people who have Ken Loach experiences um, and I knew that I would cry and I, I did at the end and Palace were showed mercy and took ages to turn up the lights with the sniffling people sort of shuffling out and I think it's exactly, if you know Ken Loach it's exactly what you expect you get delivered exactly, exactly what you expect uh, I think that's entirely true, in fact uh in a way, every single development in this film is predictable. I, I saw every everything before it happened. I, there's this inexorable uh, trajectory that the main characters' lives are heading down. Uh, it, it would only take a very minor tweak to the sensibility of this film and it would actually be an Eastern Bloc comedy. It's, it's all about how bureaucracy just ruins people. And here it's in a very contemporary setting and very relatable we know that um whether it's the uk or australia or all these western rich western nations that still see fit to torment uh the uh, certain sections of the populace who often just through sheer misfortune um find themselves in dire straits which get direer the more that they try to engage with the system that's you know, notionally meant to help them Casting a comedian in this main role is a really interesting um, uh, tactic. I, I don't know this guy's comedy, but I actually found him quite funny until the film became just altogether too unfunny for to actually really find the humour that kind of is there if you were to try to take a sort of a, uh, a Czechoslovak New Waves uh, <laughs> reading of this film somehow, look look for its Kafkaesque qualities and, and find them amusing. Uh much as, say, Terry Gilliam did to great effect with Brazil or certain other filmmakers have. You know, they've, they've used that for you know, still satirical purposes and to, to cock a snook at, at the viciousness and uh, indifference of certain sorts of regimes, in fact, many sorts of regimes. Um, but, yeah, this film had me you know, extremely depressed by the end of it. It, it did exactly what it was set out to do. I, I absolutely knew every move it was going to make. I, I sensed every beat and it still gutted me. And I think that's because it was so leadenly predictable in a way. Or, or inevitable. Uh, and that's what yeah. I always find. I haven't yeah. seen this, but I'm really fascinated by this idea of him using a comedian. I'm sure that he, in an earlier film, used Bubble from Ab Fab. I can't remember the act actress's oh. name. Jane Horrocks. Jane Horrocks. Yeah. It's a film about domestic violence. I, it's quite early. I wish I could remember the name of it. But it had a really similar effect because it's bubble and you keep waiting for mm. her to do bubble things from Ab Fab and it's like, oh, no, that's <laughs> not that's not the yeah, direction that this film is taking. This might uh, play slightly differently to a British audience because, yeah, he's just not known here as a comedian or I haven't come across him anyway, so, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with him, so I came into this film blind uh, in terms of who he was and his background, but I... I you know, did know it was a Ken Loach film and I roughly knew the subject matter, but I, I still found this film far more powerful and moving, moving and effective than I possibly imagined. I think this is one of Loach's best films and it's, 
it's one of the few Loach films that I think I'd like to see again because I actually found the emotional journey of this very satisfying. It, it, it's devastating. And there's a scene, I think the film peaks in the middle at, at the food bank scene and anybody who's oh, seen the film will know what I'm talking about. Absolutely devastating, yeah. and that see, scene. That's a moment I didn't see coming yeah. and, and that really upset me. That, that That's when I, mm. my heart really broke. Um and I, I do get what you're saying, Cerise, about how this could easily be an Eastern European comedy no. because it is so. It, it is like the trial. It really is this insane yeah. bureaucracy gone mad. But the reason I found it moving is, you know, I, I've dealt with Centrelink in Australia myself. I've had a couple of patches where things haven't gone to plan, and my experience is nothing like what the characters in this film go through. I'm not going to pretend I'm, I've nearly had the misfortune of these people, but I have dealt with Centrelink bureaucracy and and that. And that way they destroy your your, your your will to live and the way they encourage you basically to give up. I don't know whether they do that deliberately, but it sure as hell feels like it at yeah, the time. Yeah, and, yeah. and so much of what they do to you seems counter to you actually getting back on your feet. And this film realised that in a way I found so plausible and convincing, in a way I've never seen a film articulate. And some of the backlash against the film has, or, has already been, well, this is too improbable. This is a leftist director exaggerating the reality to oh, not at all. pursue their own agenda. <laughs> not at all, unfortunately. Not at all. And, and a people lot of people... People have always said that about Loach. Yeah, it's like an old... Yeah. It's like that chestnut again. Yeah. Like, and a lot have of you not figured out what it is that he's doing? <laughs> yeah, and even people who've worked in the system have seen this film and said, no, that, that's, that's, that's bang on. That's how we're trained to, 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 to react. So, um... Yeah, I, I was. I thought this was enormously impressive. I, I think that there are moments, and Loach. This is Loach's main weakness. Is every now and then he slips into high drama, and it gets almost Greek tragedy. And the second last scene of the film actually goes a little bit into hyper melodrama, and I saw that coming a mile off. But then he rescues it again with the last scene, which is a more subdued, downplayed moment. That's just 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 sort of more simmeringly. Uh, uh, Effective. That that will be my only my only complaint. Otherwise, I found this extremely convincing and moving. What was his big film in the nineties that everybody went absolutely? My name is Joe. There was an another one. My name is Joe. That was I actually found um, uh, I Daniel Blake to be a similar, almost like a partner film for My Name Is Joe. Although that one was um, set in Glasgow, but it had a very similar feel to it, and it had a similar gut punch for me. And even it's interesting that both of them are uh, the titles are My Name Is Joe, I Daniel Blake. It's all about this, you know, personal pride, and this is my name. Look at me, remember me. I'm worth something. Is it the one you're thinking of, Alex? No. no. In the nineties, was it Carla's song or? I'll get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Land and Freedom was quite a big one. I can't remember. Was that the Spanish Um, Revolution one? Was that... There was... I'm sure that there was... I might even have the wrong decade. (laughs) I just... What you were saying about the melodrama, I think, is where I'm going, aside from my... my Or Sweet 16, 2002, Sweet 16. Yeah, that could be it. See, that was the one... That melodrama Yeah, that was a bit too much for me, that one. Yeah. That's a really good point, I think. And it's an interesting way that he does kind of amplify that emotionality almost too much. I find that really fascinating. And sometimes the politics spills a little bit too much into what should be everyday dialogue. But I I think this film was far more restrained than than usual. It it teetered at points. (laughs) But I think overall it worked. I did like... He handles time very well. It unfolds very well in in terms of the sense of the character's time, what the character goes through, without pushing the cinematic time to a ridiculous length. I mean, I think it's a 99-minute film or something like that. But you do get a sense of... um, uh, the frustration and feeling infuriated and 
the sense of time that passed. I mean, cinematic time's really hard to handle. It's, you know, you can get it if the audience doesn't feel that, oh, okay, he's waited long enough or he hasn't, then, uh, you know, it all falls apart. But Ken Loach handles it so well. And that's probably the experience from 50 years of filmmaking, I guess. Well, uh, Vivaldi, hold music. Uh, <laughs> as a motif, yes. um, yeah, it speaks volumes. We all know what it's like to be put on hold for indeterminate periods of time. Um, we don't necessarily know what it's like to have that uh, with such high stakes as in this film, but we, that, that frustration is immensely relatable and that real sense of time just uh, escaping, uh, time that you could have put to good end except that you have to stay close to this phone just in case somebody might actually pick it up and might actually then actually be useful, uh, which is certainly no guarantee. Um, it, it is an infuriating film. It, it, there is, there is um, but it, I, I still laughed a lot, actually, I, mm. especially earlier on in the film. The, the opening exchange against a black screen, so it's really just the, the voices over the phone, him trying to... Um, or is it over the phone? It's, you, you can't no, it's tell in the person. It's just in it person. Is, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is in yeah. person. The Geordie accents. Yeah, <laughs> but more just this exchange where uh, somebody who's just going down a checklist in order to determine whether he's fit to look for work. And, he, yeah, he's got uh, a doctor's say-so that, no, he mustn't look for work. And yet this woman will not bend from this extremely uh, limited set of uh, criteria for to determine whether he should receive payments still or not. And, and is she a doctor? He, he, he poses many good questions. She's a healthcare professional, it, yeah. she says. Yeah. <laughs> Who's outsourced as well. We don't quite figure out where she was. Was, was there a suggestion she's working for an American company? Oh, yeah, uh, there was something, yeah. Maybe. yeah, yeah I remember the, the, that. They were alluding to the privatisation yeah, of this that of it's this all system. operating at a remove um, and that there's no flexibility. She cannot apply any sort of human touch to this. She cannot apply any uh, subjective um, reading of the situation. She just has to stick to the script and not mm -hmm. bend at all. And it's, it is funny at the start, mm. but it, it's not funny for very long. No, we uh, really, yeah. I mean, the reason I say I think I would I would like to see this film again and I found it emotionally satisfying is some of the more powerful moments were moments of joy and camaraderie and defiance. Yeah. And moments where characters are just lovely to each other. Like, the stuff between him and this and this single mother he meets is really, really beautiful. And it's, you know, two different people, for whatever reasons, are in this situation. And they just they just start to look after each other. Yeah. And all do, those yeah. scenes are really genuine and, and really beautiful. Yeah. And some of the later scenes where, you know, the, he, he makes very small acts of defiance, which we know are not going to get him anywhere in the long run, but in the moment you're there with the crowds cheering him on. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It took a while for me to shake this off, um, but I, I would like to see it again. I have to say I would like to see it again because I thought it was very successful and well-deserving of a big award as well. It would be nice if this could be employed somehow as a, um, a training uh, program for Centrelink <laughs> employees yeah. to uh, some sort of sensitivity training. You, uh, you Daniel Blake. I, yeah, <laughs> made, well, I, yeah, I mean, actually, I don't know if it's quite blunt enough to get across to people within that that uh, field to really grasp the effect that their indifference has to people um, of a whole variety of walks of life. I mean, if, I suppose if Ken Lodge really wanted to ram this message home, I mean, you wouldn't have picked a white, presumably heterosexual male as the protagonist. Um, but again, uh, 
you couldn't get a more everyman figure than this sort of lump in sort of what is he late fifties sort of carpenter working class fifty nine. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that was the idea. You know, yeah. the, he's the bread and butter of England. Yeah. He's 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 yeah. part of that generation. One of those men who made Britain great. He's working class. Yeah. He uses his hands to build things. We might like to reflect too that Brexit wouldn't have happened uh, when this film was being shot, but by the time it's hit that's cinemas right. here, that's very much a reality now. And, and looking at this through a post-Brexit lens, I'm sure is a little different to. Uh, if we were to view it before that uh, rather unpredictable, well, perhaps more predictable than had been predicted uh, <laughs> well, event. We should okay. point out it's a racially diverse cast. I oh, mean, yes. Loach, he doesn't make a big deal of it, but he includes people from many different backgrounds yes. who, are, who are friends of... Um, uh, friends of Daniel Blake's and the community. Yeah. I love yeah. all the stuff with the neighbour, yeah. the, the young guy who'd, who'd found quite an ingenious way to earn a bit of money doing something that was kind of illegal but not quite. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it was just... Blake's kind of joy at seeing what this guy was doing and his amusement was, was really fun. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think Loach is so aware of all these of all these issues that that that, um, that Twitter sort of is. <laughs> Loach has been doing stuff ten years now that people on Twitter have only caught up with in the last few months. Which is funny because uh, there's a, there's a lot of jabs at social media. A new media and just the whole online world it's something that the protagonist of this film has no idea about at all it's, uh, that was a curious detail because I'm one of these people who I get a bit frustrated with this idea that some certain generations can't use technology I believe that whether you're 30 40 50 or 60 you you know learn new technology is all the same so I, I have been very guilty of dismissing the idea that you can't use a computer at a certain age but but this film makes a really compelling case for people from certain walks of life who've just never have and, had to use computers before yeah. so and being also, told go online is absurd also to it was the the he was bringing in that what is it that Maslow's hierarchy of need or whatever, you know, when you're in a position where you're trying to feed yourself, you don't want to all of a sudden learn computer skills, you know. Uh, And that idea that he had to get his CV done and learn new marketing techniques for his CV, I mean, the guy's a carpenter and he just wants to pay his bills and feed himself. So, you know, it was kind of irrelevant. It was a ridiculous thing to ask him to do. Um, and that's where the technology thing comes into it as well. You know, you couldn't expect a guy who's worked all his life on making stuff um, out of wood to then become a computer expert. And they did it well. That was a comedy. That was a comedy too. <laughs> Three triple R. Ruin is an Australian-made film set in Cambodia, which, like Neon Bull won the special jury prize at the Venice International Film Festival, although uh, Ruin won all the way back in 2013 when it debuted. After then screening it to much acclaim at various international and Australian festivals in 2014, it is now only getting a small release in the guise of various event screenings, with two more scheduled in Melbourne for next Saturday and the Saturday after at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Combining both raw naturalistic scenes with highly impressionist moments, Ruin is about a young man and a young woman on the run together in modern-day Cambodia. Before meeting up and wordlessly joining forces, the man has been engaging in a series of escalating violent crimes in order to survive, and the woman had been forced into prostitution. Ruin is a calibration between writers, directors and producers Michael Cody and Emil Corton-Wilson. 
Cody has previously worked primarily as a producer, while Corton Wilson is best known for his acclaimed 2011 film Hail and his much-loved 2008 documentary Barsity about the wonderful Jack Child. Charles. <laughs> I have so how, much acclaim. How wonderful is he? He's so, so, he's so yeah. wonderful, I stumbled over his name. <laughs> and in fact, that film, Barsity, I think has a lot to do with why Jack Charles has come back on the cultural radar in such a pronounced way and is now recognised as the national treasure he is. No exaggeration there whatsoever. Yeah. Charles is an extraordinary performer. Uh, Corn Wilson's a very interesting filmmaker. Um, we covered Hale, I think, on Plato's Cave when it was, got a small run. And ex-caver Josh Nelson, in fact, won an award for writing on that film. He was very much taken by it. And I think the stylistic approach used in Hale, we see some of that reflected in, in Ruin as, as well. What did you guys make of this? I have to say from the outset, what really struck me watching this film, just thinking about it, was uh, a point of comparison with a film that's really very different tonally and in terms of its subject matter, but there's quite a couple of other things that it really has in common. A film that we did about a year ago called Tanner, um, which was made by a duo of Australian filmmakers who had lived in an area overseas and who had kind of immersed themselves in a culture and made a film about that culture. The Rocket is um, another example of that. There you go. It's a really... In Laos, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that. Um, I think it's really... I mean, it's a really interesting thing. So, funnily enough, I, when I was watching this, I was thinking a lot about Tanner, which is completely unreasonable because they really don't have a lot in common. Um, ex- again, they both went... Um, got big shout-outs at Venice. Yes. Um, they were both really huge at Venice. And I think Tanner is the Australian... Foreign language. Oscar foreign Oscar, language yeah. film. Yeah. Um, for, the, for, the, for the Vanuatu coming, and language. Yeah, they use the... the but it's, it's countries that don't necessarily have huge film industries themselves. Yep. Yep. And um, Australian filmmakers have very much embedded themselves in the culture and used and used the, the local talent to make a film with. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think some people who don't know the backstory often accuse these films of cultural appropriation or exploitation, and it's f- radically far, yeah. far from that. Well, Tanner certainly is very, very conscious. Um, just in its characterizations, it's really deep characterizations. You really don't have a moment to think about that, and I think mm. that this film at the same time also, it's quite explicit in its stance against... Westerners. I mean, there's a scene in this film that is quite extraordinary. It really doesn't hold back on the negative impact that that kind of cultural. No, that's right. And the, 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 the Rocket, which have. is very much a family film, similar. I mean, it, it, it's the real deal. And actually, there's elements in the Rocket that's quite critical of, of Western interference in yep. Laos. I think this film is beautiful. Mm. I think Ruin is a really beautiful film, and uh, there are images in this film that uh, will stay with me forever. There's one moment where the couple are in a boat. And a little child just bobs past them in a bucket or a big pot, something yeah, just bobs rowing. quietly past. <laughs> and it's just one of those it's one of those sort of nothing images that is absolutely going to stay with you for decades. You know, I that that beautiful that, be- just these beautiful moments. They arrived to make the film with no film in mind, I believe. It was kind of a film that was made in situ once the guys, the filmmakers got over to um, Cambodia and um, Michael Cody had spent, I don't know whether it was in um, Cambodia that he spent most of his time, but he has spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and you can definitely see that in the film and it's, you know, it's no easy task because there's always, I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia as well and there's a definite divide between um, locals and tourists or visitors and it's kind of really 
it's embedded at an almost bureaucratic level um, that the it's everything play up to the tourist tourist money tourists will even get in areas free where the locals have to pay and these are people who don't have as much money so it's kind of hard to get right under the skin of Southeast Asia and this film has done that really well in a broad sense as well, not just Cambodia it's it's like Indonesia and as well um, and Malaysia and places like that and there were a couple of um, instances the night scenes um, they really played well with those um, cool white LED bulbs they're a big thing in Southeast Asia I think because they're all um, you know, uh, cheap uh, those the uh, cheap bulbs that last forever uh, and they are very harsh and create a very harsh light and that was um, mainly in those opening scenes in Phnom Penh uh, that you you get a sense of that and also what I really liked was they did this focus on hands in dancing and that's a very Southeast Asian thing I even had someone say to me once you have long fingers good for dancing which made me kind of think for a moment because I usually think feet for dancing but in Southeast Asia the hands are just as important and that was played up a couple of times in this film so there were a lot of things there that were really strong cultural awareness and it isn't easy to get to the people and get the people to express themselves in that way as a foreigner. The film that this most reminded me of though and I think yeah, comparing it to Tanner and the Rocket from a production point of view is fascinating but the film this reminded me of the most was Samson and Delilah oh, yeah. which I actually got to revisit recently um, because we, we do have these two people who are very much... Uh, in, in, in danger of, of violence from the society around them who, who, who go on the run and their their relationship which is kind of somewhere between friendship and romance, it's not explicitly defined but it's mainly wordless like the characters don't we don't see them talking a, a lot in the film it's mainly through body language and, and there's just this kind of natural bond that forms between them i mean we we know this man in the film is potentially quite violent and and doesn't hold back from committing acts of violence but i certainly never got the feeling in the film he was going to hurt this woman and then she seemed to instinctively instinctively trust him so i quite like that bond and i i quite like the um yeah that the, the blend of kind of very raw footage and then their highly impressionist moments which Reminds me of the director Lars von Trier, who in many of his later films, especially Antichrist and Melancholia, works with that to enormous effect. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point of comparison. That's an excellent yeah. call. Yep. And in Stark, we're talking Neon Bull, which also won the award at Venice. This film is where it was Neon Bull was um, sent around wide shots. This is very intimate, very close shots. And we just talked about Andrea... Arnold with American Honey and played that track uh, from the soundtrack. I found that uh, his the way that the filmmakers use the close-ups on hair and necks and that sort of coming in and out of focus. And yeah, it's really textural. Yeah, it's very, it's very, very much like Andrea Arnold. She mm-hmm. does that uh, very well, and there was a lot of that in this. It's really tactile, and I think there's a scene right at the start in a toilet, um, yeah. as you do. Um, and there's a lot of water and. Um, things are happening in this scene. I don't want to give anything away. There's a scene in a toilet. Um, but it's so tactile. Like, it, it has that cold, concrete horrible light. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just you feel that film that's so sensory. It's such a sensory moment. So almost the, the events that are happening in that sequence are almost secondary to the sensory experience of the film. And I think, for me, that's when this film was at its strongest, was when I had a sensory connection to it. 
because as much as I admire its craft and I absolutely recognise why it's why it's got the accolades that it's had it has because I think it's um you know it's formally hugely impressive, it kind of just left me cold. Um, and you know, compared to something like Tanner that had real warmth to it, um, and I don't mean warmth in like a gooey, happy kind of way, um, I just didn't care. I just had no emotional connection with this film at all. I admired its craft. Mm. I, I do know what you're saying, and it has got a, a sort of a, almost a minimal vibe to it, which it's a shame it didn't get a broader release at the time it was made because yeah. I think it would have had more, more impact back then. I don't know the backstory. I don't know why. I mean, I, I guess you can look at it objectively and say it's not the most commercial film. Mm-hmm. But it's funny that we did this in the same show as Neon Bull because I saw those two as quite similar films in that there is sort of a, a, a minimalist approach in the ter- in terms of the amount of story information we get and even you know the focus is on these amazing visuals and um they often are there to serve the purpose just to be there in themselves rather than providing character or story information um so i, I think i actually connected with this a little bit more than the neon bull i mean both are films i enormously r- respect but yeah i think R- ruin i did get caught up in and i think especially once i made that comparison to Samson Delilah actually I, I, I sort of fell under its spell a bit more from a, from a purely practical level um, having a film that's so uh, luscious in, in the look and, and same with Neon Bull uh, it's, and not having a dialogue heavy film means that and being a foreign language film means that you can actually appreciate the, the visuals more because as uh, you know non um, Cambodian speaker uh, I wouldn't have been able to languish in them so beautifully as I did in this case. But, um, yes, anyway, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> On Planet's Cave tonight, we've been discussing Neon Bull. It's screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Potential Films. I, Daniel Blake, is on limited release through t- Transmission Films. And Ruin, which we were just discussing, is screening twice more at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. That's next Saturday and again the Saturday after that. Go to the ACME website for more details. You have been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.